ಮೋಥಸ ಭಗವಥೋ ಅರ್ಹಥೋ ಸಂಬುಥಸ ನಮೋಥಸ ಭಗವಥೋ ಅರ್ಹಥೋ ಸಂಬುಥಸ ನಮೋಥಸ ಭಗವಥೋ ಅರ್ಹಥೋ ಸಂಬುಥಸ ಪೂಥಂಗಮಸ್ವಾಮಿ So it gives me great pleasure to be here at Abhayagiri to see how developed, well-developed it has become. And I'm on a tour of the North American monasteries. I thought when they, I was intending to come last year, but uh, the COVID pandemic seem to be the, an obstacle. And I wanted to see my sister who lives in Vancouver, Washington. And she just uh, turned 90. And so old age, you don't know how long, how many years left you have. And so this is uh, an attempt to visit all of you <coughs> at this time and who knows what's going to happen in the future. And it's very uh, encouraging to realize how much interest there is in Dhamma, in Buddhism at this time here in America. Because I remember, I became interested in 1955 And then there was only a few uh, hippies or beatniks, I remember, <laughs> in San Francisco. And a few extra odd people that were interested. And of course it is a teaching that is timeless. You know, it have, I've received many uh, questions about an ancient religion, what has an ancient religion from India, what has that to do with modern countries like the United States? And, uh, you know, in terms of time, it's a timeless teaching. It's not about culture or uh, conditions that re refer only to uh, previous civilizations, previous cultures. So that's why it it comes alive even to this day in, in modern democratic countries like this one. And why is that? Because it's based on reality. It's, uh, it's not a, a belief system that you have to adopt or believe in, in deities uh, that you know nothing about, that are not a part of a present-day American mindset or cultural belief possibilities. And that's what attracted me and I think most of uh, not monks and nuns from non-Buddhist countries as well as lay people to Buddhism at this time because it takes the common 
human factor that we all can relate to very easily, whether it's whether you're rich or poor, male or female, about the reality of suffering. And so it always fascinated me that that uh, after the Buddha became enlightened, according to the scriptures we have, his first sermon was called the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is a simple statement. It's not a doctrine. It's not a metaphysical beliefs at all. It's based on the most common, banal and ordinary experience that we all can relate to is suffering. And sometimes Buddhism gets misinterpreted as the Buddha said, everything is suffering as a kind of uh, doctrinal statement or a metaphysical belief. But it's about in understanding suffering because that's what we experience in these forms. These forms, these human bodies, you know, go, are born, grow up, get old, get sick and die and that we are so identified, so convinced, so bound by the limitations of the form that we, we believe that we are. So in a modern country like the United States, you know, all of us were brought up to believe I am this physical form. And so that seems in many ways <coughs> easy to accept because it's never questioned beyond that. It's, uh, you know, it seems that this is what I am, this body sitting here in this seat is, is what I, you know, I have a passport <coughs> with my picture of my face in it and, and uh, pictures and photographs and so, so forth that, you know, that relate to what I look like. But then the question is, what am I really? Am I just a, a physical form, a human form that was born, grows up, gets old, gets sick and dies? Is that all there is to it? And what happens when you die? What's going to happen when, when I die, the body is no longer, it will decay or be cremated, be disappear. And so then what I convinced over many years out of ignorance, the belief that I am a, this, this physical form, then what happens to it? You know, and then there are various theories about reincarnation or going to heaven or hell or uh, you know, so there, there's all kinds of tr attempts to explain what happens when we die, and and the and the physical body is uh, is completely vanished from, from like the body of Gautama the Buddha. Where is it? You know, they try. We try to find relics of it. Uh, we we put them on shrines, but that's not the Buddha. So the Buddha took the most ordinary human experience that's not, you, you know, to believe in suffering is rather ridiculous. It's to be observed, to be understood. So it's not a pessimistic teaching, you know, that everything's suffering and we're all going to die. It's kind of, uh, that's it and there's nothing more than that. It, 
it's, as Buddha made it very clear in his first sermon, it's, it's not a nihilistic teaching. It's called the Machima Bhattibhata, the middle way. Well, what can that be? What is the middle way in terms of these identities that we are conditioned by? For example, when, when we're born, uh, a newborn baby doesn't have an ego, doesn't have memories, doesn't have a language. It has no, you know, it's a conscious human form. And so, after birth, after we're born, then we get conditioned. We develop the ego, what we call Sakya Ditti in Pali, which is the, the first fetter, the first obstruction that blinds us to ultimate reality, to the reality of Dhamma. So Sakya Ditti, or we translate that as the ego, the self-view, is something we acquire. They're not born with Sakya Ditti or an ego. It's called conditioning or programming, like you're programming your computer. And then there's conventional realities that we're conditioned by, with a kind of parents, uh, the race, the gender, the the family identities. Everything comes after that, you know. As we learn to think, we learn to we acquire the ability to either think and have a language to think with. Then we. Uh, form views and opinions about ourselves, about how we've been programmed, our our, the prejudices of the time, the, the, the political views of the time, the religious conditioning that's acquired. And so we, we, we grow up with these conditions, uh, these conditions that you know, we strongly hold to without realizing that they are not reality in any way. They are called sankharas or conditions or phenomena that arise and cease that the Buddha described as soap bubbles foam on the seashore and things like that that have no essence, no soul, no heart. But so much of the problems of modern life in human relationships, in political systems, in religious views and opinions is based on these assumptions that we acquire. So the Buddha was pointing to the way it is, the ultimate reality, by taking strictly a temporary condition such as suffering, a, a kind of general uh, way of looking at it and understanding it. And to understand something, to understand suffering, it's not about analyzing why, why do I suffer. It's not about you know, me trying to figure out why I have these problems with, with greed, with anger, with hatred, with jealousy, with fear. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with me because I feel these, these strong emotions arise in my mind. 
But to see the very causes of suffering, to get to the very source of suffering, which is ignorance of Dhamma, or ultimate reality. So the Buddhist teachings are very skillful pointers to ultimate reality without stating exactly what ultimate reality is. So we have this word Dhamma, and for those who were born in Buddhist families, Buddhist countries, Dhamma is a kind of a traditional word that's part of a cultural conditioning. But for those of us who, who came to Buddhism later in life, the word, you know, we say ultimate reality, ultimate truth, the absolute, these are the best words we can find in English language to define something that we, we can't really know what it is. What is Dhamma? And you know, what is the absolute? What is ultimate reality? And of course, the more we try to describe ultimate reality, the more remote it becomes. It becomes something far away, something that uh, we have to get, that we, you know, that we are so separate from ultimate reality at this time that we have to spend a lifetime meditating in order to find out Dhamma or realize ultimate reality. And of course this, all these kind of thoughts are based on the thinking, their thoughts, their sankharas, their conditions. And, they, and no condition, there's no word, no concept, no perception that has any reality in itself. And yet we spend our time trying to figure out Dhamma or define how, what's the perfect definition for Dhamma in English language or another language. You know, we can spend years arguing, you know, what, what is it? Because you can't imagine Dhamma. You, it has no image. It's never, the Buddha didn't personify Dhamma. So in Buddhist countries like Thailand, they have symbol, a Dhamma Jaka, a wheel. It's just a symbol for Dhamma. But what does that mean, a wheel? So that, then what the Buddha points to is the second noble truth is uh, desire, the causes of, of uh, suffering. So this is an investigation of suffering and the causes of suffering. And this is what many of us find so fascinating about this particular uh, traditional teaching is it's an encouragement to investigate, to find out for ourselves, not just accept what monks say or how we interpret scriptural teachings, but it's an invitation, an open, wide open invitation to investigate, to find out for yourself. So when the Buddha said in the First Noble Truth there is suffering, 
as I said before, it's not about believing in it, but understanding it. And so this is, to investigate it, you need to observe it. Because we know when we're suffering, so many, you know, in monastic life, I remember uh, suffering a lot, just trying to, to uh, fit into a, to a convention that, that was very strange to me. The suffering of living in a community with other monks the suffering of just interpersonal relationships with friends or family, the suffering of not being able to get what I want, or the suffering of endlessly trying to get rid of uh, defilements or faults or things I could see were, were bad or, I, I, you know, I labeled as personal uh, weaknesses or cowardice or fear. So that was uh, when I first started uh, investigating, you know, I, I kept trying to get rid of anger and celebrate life, get rid of sexual desire and trying to get rid of fear and confusion. I, I didn't like to feel confused. I wanted answers to questions, solutions to problems. And that's how I was conditioned by life, by my background, by my education, was to try to solve everything through analyzing myself because the basic delusion was that I am this particular form, this personality is what I am, and I could imagine a perfect person, a, a person that's perfect. I could imagine a, you know, perfection, how everything should be. I, you know, so we have these utopian images of where everybody's happy and content and beautiful and young and healthy and their sickness is completely gone and, and conquering death and all the rest where we can imagine that. But that's not the way life is for anyone. No matter how fortunate, how wealthy one might be as a human individual, we still have to grow old, get sick and die. We, all, we still have to experience a, a separation from what we love and like, or the death of our parents, our teachers, and so forth. This is part of life. It's not part of the image of perfection that I can create with my thinking mind. And therefore, when I met Lung Po Tra, you know, his teaching was very much the Four Noble Truths. And uh, he was always emphasizing awareness, conscious awareness, what I call mindfulness, as the, as the way of practice. And of course, reading scriptures, reading commentaries like Visuddhi Magga, I developed a, out of my own ignorant conditioning, trying to develop a sense of 
there's something I've got to get that I don't have. I've got to get rid of these defilements or kill these kilesas. I've got to, I, I'm basically imperfect, unsatisfactory. I've got so many weaknesses and flaws in my character. And, you know, to be a normal, healthy, fully perfected monk, bhikkhu, I had to get rid of these conditions. Because on the logical level, that's the way it seems, you know, that these things are called kilesas or defilements. And then logically, you want to get rid of defilements, what's, what's bad, what isn't right. So this was, in a, you know, in my beginning years was an attempt to, to get rid of these defilements. And, uh, you know, no matter how hard I tried to, to uh, attain perfection of my, that I imagine, I never felt perfect as a person. Because my personality doesn't see, doesn't imagine perfection as something I don't have, that I've got to get. And so, you know, in the Christian tradition, you're brought up to think you're born in sin. So you, you know, the immediate, immediately you're born, you're kind of damaged goods, and you have to try to mend those damages is oftentimes how one interprets scriptural teachings. So what are we, ultimate reality, when we take refuge in Dhamma, because that's part of this tradition. And that before I started giving this talk, I chanted Bhutang Tamang Sangsang Namasai, taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. This is you know, the Pali, Thai tradition. And so we can chant that, we can say it, we can learn Pali words, and we can define them with with English words. But they're still words, they're still sankharas, they're still creations made by other human beings. So if Buddhism was just an ancient religion from India with exotic teachings and deities and all kinds of fantastic images which, which oftentimes you find in Buddhist temples with about Devadas and Indra and Brahma and so forth, these are part of Indian tradition. But the basic teaching the teaching after Gautama, the Buddha's enlightenment, was not about devadas, angels, or gods, deities, or anything that you can imagine, but Dhamma. And in order to realize Dhamma, the path is to understand suffering. And to understand suffering, as I said, you, you begin to observe your own sense of inadequacy. And uh, Ajahn Chah, this, he gave this kind of teaching called Bhutto, which is a, a kind of 
mantra of the Buddha's name. So Buddha then became something, not just a Buddha image of a form on, on a shrine or the memory of an ancient sage, but something here and now, awareness itself, conscious awareness here and now, being able to be the observer of suffering rather than the owner of suffering. Whereas a person, I own suffering. I didn't want to suffer, I wanted to be happy. And then when I suffered, you know, I felt it was definitely some fault, some flaw in me as a separate person. But taking refuge in Buddha, and with Lung Po Cha's emphasis on Puto, is just a method, two-syllable word, very easy to remember, to reflect, to observe, to investigate. So, you know, I learned the first year that I lived with Lung Po Cha, in Wat in Thailand. This was the teaching that, that, that I remember vividly that I could actually use because I couldn't understand the language. And uh, in a very strict Vinaya monastery in northeast Thailand, you know, being in such a unique and different position from my own life before. And then Lumpo Cha's emphasis on Bhutto, awareness. Because I found, you know, I just observed my frustrations, my critical mind, my, my feeling of guilt and remorse, my, the sense of being separate from the rest. the way I could create endless problems, the fact that I was an American living in, in a Thai monastery. You know, I could cre- create a sense of separateness and uniqueness and anxiety, trying to fit into to what's considered proper behavior, right speech, right action. In a, in a situation that was very baffling for me most of the time. So this confusing, I remember feeling so much confusion the first year, not quite understanding how to fit in or what to do, and feeling, you know, full of doubt. But Ajahn Chah's emphasis was on observing it, not trying to solve, get an answer to the question or a solution to the problem, but to be the puto, the witness of confusion or doubt or worry or self-consciousness, anger, greed, So this, this was, you know, I found something I could do without being, you know, at first, the first it took me several years to be able to understand the, the language. So, so it was, you know, a lot of just going through translations or 
trying to figure out the words, but the main emphasis was on conscious awareness. So consciousness is not something born and dies, and this is confusing for Theravadans because when we talk about the five khandhas, you know, this is the basic teaching, the five khandhas refer to the body, the feelings, the, the uh, memories, the emotions that arise, and sensory experiences through consciousness, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. So, you know, this is a, the basic five khandha teaching, is seeing that all of this is impermanent, like eye consciousness or ear consciousness. It's con- their consciousness operates through these sense organs on these bodies. But where does it come from? You know, is consciousness limited to the form? And this is a good question to ask yourself. Is consciousness just personal? Because if it's just limited to my form, then my consciousness is different from yours. This form is different. I'm sitting here, you're sitting there. So consciousness is, you know, when I see it in terms of five khandhas, it seems definitely impermanent because it's always changing from seeing to hearing to smelling to tasting to touching to thinking. So it seems very uh, kind of desultory and untrustworthy because it seems to be changing even when you don't want it to. Where the body is has a sense of kind of more solidity, you know. It, it's it's uh, you know if if you live to a ripe old age, you know you have many memories of the past, and it's what you you have to live with all the time, whether you, you know through day or night, through all the the stages of growing up, getting old getting sick, the body is very much a important part of our experience. But it is an experience. And so the Buddha emphasized in his teaching anatta, non-self. And so the question arises, if I'm not this physical body then, who am I? Because this definitely seems like me in terms of my conventional way of thinking, my cultural background, if there's anything that's me, it's this physical form. But then the question is, is it really all that there is? Because it's old. It has all kinds of problems of old age and will die in a few years. So this is you know, is this all there is to me? Bhikkhu Sumato is just an old body that will just become a memory when I'm dead. Like right now, Ajahn Chah is a memory. 
a very pleasant memory for those that knew him. But what is a memory? So we ask ourselves. And memories just come and go, seemingly out of nowhere. So I can remember, uh, you know, I went to visit my sister, who's losing her memories, but I could, she could still remember childhood memories, her youth, her middle age, it was just the present memory, she forgets everything very quickly. Short-term memory, dementia. Is that what my sister is? Is it just uh, a memory? Because I can remember my sister when I was just uh, four years old. She was two years older than I. And she can remember it. But the present moment, that is just a memory that comes and goes. Where does it come from and where does it go? Because you don't remember my sister when she was four years, when I was four years old. But I do, so that's very personal. So these create this sense of a separate personality. So Sakyaditi is, uh, is about a separate personality. I am of separate from you. I am a different person. I have different memories, different generation, different gender. I'm a Buddhist monk. You're lay people, and on and on like that makes you know defines the forms and the conventions. But that's no refuge to trust in. Just in, in any of these conventions. Because they are conventions, they're merely directional signs to help us, to awaken us to Dhamma, to ultimate reality. So this investigation of desire, because in English, at least from my background, Desire always has a kind of pejorative meaning. You know, if, if you say someone has a lot of desires, that's not ex- exactly flattering. And so when they translate the Pali word dhanha as desire, you know, immediately see it as, as something not very nice. But then in the Second Noble Truth, they, there's three kinds of desires which I found very helpful for reflecting on experience. So gamma dhanha is sensual desire. So that's quite obvious. You see something beautiful like those flowers and you, you want to look at them. They draw you, beauty, beautiful things draw you towards that object that you see. Or when they get old and start smelling bad and no longer beautiful and you don't want to see them anymore. That's another kind of desire. So there's a desire for becoming. You know, when I ordained, I I had the desire to become enlightened. Reading Buddhist books on Buddha Dhamma and so forth, 
you know, inspired me to want to get enlightened as a person. And so that's one reason why I ordained as a Buddhist monk, to get enlightened as a person. Because I still had this strong sense of separate self, of being this form, this personality. And I wanted to have it become enlightened. And in desire itself, I found so much of my practice Meditation techniques, meditation practices were based on trying to get something I didn't have. Wanting to get concentrated, samadhi, get jhanas, get stream entry. I mean, because you, you know, I'd read the, about these in the scriptures. And they're all desirable objects. You know, you imagine, you can imagine enlightenment as being a person without flaws. being a perfectly contented, happy individual person is an ideal, very nice one. So, so, but Ajahn Chah was always pointing to here and now the way it is. So investigating the second noble truth, I began to observe these strong desires to to get something I didn't have, such as my images of samadhi practices. Read about them in Visuddhimagga and I wanted to have them, wanted to get them. <clears throat> They're desirable images, desirable percepts. You know, so then the, the, the idea of trying to get it seemed right you know, it seemed like a good thing to be doing, to be practicing in order to get samadhi, to get enlightened. But then on reflecting on bhavadanha, or desire to get something you, you feel you don't have, I began to observe in myself the way I lived the monastic life the way I related to Lumpur Cha or the other monks or the lay people was still a very personal way. Wanting to get approval, wanting to get accepted, wanting to be able to impress others. And then there's the fear of doing something wrong. Fear of, of failure. Fear of being rejected. Fear of being made fun of. And so, you know, the, the, uh, all these fears would arise and trying to just get rid of them through willful suppression, resistance and denial didn't work because no matter how hard you tried to get rid of these, these kind of memories or attitudes they still kept cropping up and disappointing me when, when I remember feeling sometimes like, well, I've, I've conquered fear now. And immediately after that, I suddenly started being frightened. So, you know, I, start, I realized that congratulating myself on achievements 
was dangerous because it seemed to invite the very thing that I'm congratulating myself that I passed over, that I've rid myself of. But the emphasis on apparent here and now, when we translate Pali words, for when we chant the, the morning and evening pujas, we chant Santiri ko Dhamma, apparent here and now. And so this is a very interesting translation because then I'd ask myself, what is apparent here and now? And of course, you know, then I immediately go out, I start looking at apparent here and now is this Dharma Hall and, and the people and the shrine and, and that, but that changes all the time. But he said, I'll be back in my kuti, and what's apparent here and now of sight is on this incessant change, changing us. So what is apparent here and now and timeless, akaliko dhamma, timeless. Try to imagine timelessness. You know, you can't do it. There's no image for timelessness. Because these are all time-bound conditions. The body is a time form. The days, the nights, the seasons, everything, condition, is, is about time. It has a beginning and an end. But timeless. You know, so then just by questioning myself, what is apparent here and now, is consciousness. Because whatever, wherever I am, I know I'm conscious. Consciousness is like this. You can't objectify consciousness. You can't find it as an object. So in modern psychology and science, they're endlessly trying to find out what consciousness really is. And, uh, you know, it's a very interesting subject for psychologists, for scientists at this time, because nobody can find it. You can't find it as an object, but you know you're conscious. At this very moment, every single person in this hall is aware that they know that if I ask you if you're conscious, you know, you will say yes, because that's a fact that you can know immediately wherever, whatever state you're in, wherever you are, whoever you're with. So awareness or mindfulness isn't, isn't about being, you know, is not limited to mindfulness of objects anymore. Because it's a common enough English word, but, you know, in your early years, your mother would tell you to be mindful crossing the street or when you're driving a car you have to be mindful of the road the signs, the signals the, the pedestrian traffic and on and on like that so you're mindful of objects so we're used to that when we read we're mindful of what we're reading watching television you're concentrated on the television set mindful of that But 
when we talk about mindfulness, conscious awareness isn't sending consciousness through the senses anymore. It's not about sensory awareness or objects, because senses all have their objects to be conscious of. So there, you know, and so this is like sending out consciousness through the senses all the time. And this is how we create this world, this society, the delusions that that we are conditioned by to see the world as an object that we can perceive. And we and in those perceptions we can criticize it or praise it. We can like or like it or don't like it. We can agree or disagree with any of the forms that we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. And so consciousness, according to the five khandhas, is impermanent. It's anicca or impermanence, it's dukkha, it's suffering, it's anatta, not self. So these three characteristics of existence are fully stated by the Buddha. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. So there's no separate self. Now that's very difficult to imagine, no separate self. Because if I'm not bhikkhu samedo, then who am I? You know, if I'm not this physical form, who am I? Because everybody addresses me as Ajahn Samedo or some other words. And so, you know, these are, these are conventions, fair enough. Nothing wrong with them. But they're not refuges. They're not dhamma. They're not ultimate real, ultimately real. So what is ultimately real for every one of us at this moment is consciousness. And that's not personal. So then you begin to shift your conditioning from the very materialistic Western mindset, which is based on consciousness came from matter, to consciousness Every, all conditions are in consciousness. So this is, this is a rather wonderful discovery because consciousness then is unitive, it's universal, it's not personal. So all the differences, biases, prejudices, views and opinions kind of vanish in awareness because you're no longer grasping these conditions as the ultimately real or a permanent sense of a separate self. But you're actually recognizing what all of us really are. Our real home is in this conscious awareness that we, as human forms, can realize for ourselves through these very skillful teachings of the Buddha. So it's, a, it's quite 
difficult, I've, I've found, because the, the conditioning, the social, cultural conditioning is so strong. And you know, my education was all about reason and logic. You know, for my generation, it was all about being reasonable, sensible, logical, figuring everything out. Answers for every question, solutions for every problem. Wanting to find out who created the world and uh, when, is, when will be the end of the world. Is there a God or isn't there a God? So there's arguments about whether God exists or there isn't any God. It's all intellectually programmed into the brain. And so, when religious traditions have strong views about God or who's right and righteousness and and uh, all that, that part of religious belief systems, not based on investigating Dhamma the way it is, but operating from the position that you acquire after you're born. What you've been conditioned to believe and grasp, you hold to that, and then you form very strong views, separate views. And, and you know, and, and even in a sangha, a, a traditional Buddhist sangha, like here at, at Bayangiri, there's differences of opinions on personal on personal matters. So, in Buddhist wisdom, when he established the Dhamma, Dhamma wheel, the Dhamma Jaka, he also established a, a form called Vinaya which is an agreement just on action and speech. So this is what allowed this particular teaching of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths and his other profound teachings to be present at this time because 2,565 years ago is a long time ago. And there must have been many enlightened individuals in, you know, in all that, in that long period of time, but nobody remembers them because they left no way of carrying the tradition, the teaching forward in time to what we now can use in modern day America. So, Sangha life is based on this agreement when we, when uh, a monk as for ordination, Upasambhada, you know, the Sangha, then it gives its agreement to accept this individual and the right to live within the structure of action and speech called Vinaya. So that makes life manageable, how, how we can work together because you know, in monasteries like in England, for example, uh, is very international. From all over Europe, Asia, monks, nuns, congregate, take the precepts, and uh, you know, and we have all different 
cultural backgrounds, different generations. But the agreement is merely conventional about action and speech, and that, that allows uh, a society to, to function together, to be able to do things to, and, and keep allowing the teachings of the Buddha to be promulgated at various stages, very different periods of time. So that's where in this tradition, Pali tradition, you have Dana Sila Bhavana. And this means Dana is a, is a kind of basic, just being generous, not being selfish and stingy, is a way to live your life as a separate individual. So the very basis, the very first statement is about Dana or generosity. Because stinginess, selfishness, is, it just increases misery and suffering for the individual as well as the society. So just this very basic teaching of dana, generosity, is, is a very good suggestion for all of us Do not be selfish and stingy. And then sila, and then we have the five precepts, just about good behavior, decent being a decent, honest, trustworthy individual, taking responsibility for action and speech, is how to be happy in modern life, in society itself. Dana Sila are ways for worldly success, worldly happiness that is very temporary. Worldly happiness is very subject to change. So even the most generous moral individuals that have not realized Dhamma still suffer because that's the nature of the samsara of the world that, we're to, that we strongly identify with. So then bhavana, so there's dana, sila, bhavana is mindfulness meditation. So that's what Bhagavad is here for, to encourage dana, sila, and bhavana here in California, to be able to make that available and possible for people living in this state or other states. So bhavana is the Pali word for meditation. Because meditation is a kind of word that includes almost any kind of mental practice. You know, it could be anything. So, but in terms of bhavana, in, in this sequence, it means investigating the Four Noble Truths. And, and then they 
tell you what to do, you know, how to understand suffering, the causes of suffering, the three kinds of desire, to let go of them. Once you see, once you realize for yourself the suffering you have about holding on to views and opinions, biases, prejudices, a sense of self-consciousness, of separateness, of loneliness, of boredom, fear. You know, there's so much to fear in this realm. This is a fear realm that we're experiencing here on planet Earth. There's so much to be afraid of in terms of our bodies, the sicknesses, the pandemic. There's wars, bombs, weapons, like what's going on in Ukraine, you know, and, and just uh, endless conflicts uh, about views and opinions. And it's all dangerous, something to fear. Old age is something to fear because, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And your ego, the sense of a personal separateness is formed when you're young. So it's interesting being old because the body's old, but you know, the, the mind isn't old. So you still, even the ego, the sense of a separate self, you know, is formed and kind of fixated when you, in your youth. And that can carry you through to a hundred years. And if you don't realize how unstable that is, then of course you're going to suffer a lot from old age. Because old age isn't what you want when you're young. You know, it seems far away in the distant future. But the emphasis of Puto is the witnessing of the way it's like this. Old age is like this. So to this day, you know, the body is old. And this is old age is like this. So this is, allows me with this old body to not suffer from it. Because old age is like this, and then it's suddenly not me, it's not what I am. It's just the natural movement of time in a physical human form is like this. And so the people ask, Arjun Sumedho, do you still suffer? And, and you know, experience, uh, you know, the pain of the body, my vision isn't very good, and on and on like this. So, so this is, uh, you know, if I start wanting it to be different, resenting it, fearing it, then that's suffering. But practicing bhavana, then you see through this sense of a separate self then what's left is conscious awareness which has no personal quality. That's why when you try to find out who you are as a person, 
you can't figure out quite where, where do you fit in, where do you belong, what am I really, what is my true identity, my true family, you know, so we have all these questions about self-discovery, our ancestry, our DNA, and all to figure out what is our astrological sign, and on and on, like trying to figure out who we, who one individual person is. When you investigate through these Four Noble Truths, you begin to realize there's no person. There's just memories, perceptions, And when there's no person, there's no suffering. So Dhamma is not suffering. It's, it's a conscious awareness here and now. It's very simple. It's the way it is. And right now, at this moment, this is the way it is for each one of us. What you're thinking or feeling at this time is not going to be exactly like what I'm thinking or feeling at this time. But consciousness, we're all in the same conscious reality. You know, there's no separation in that, there's no language, there's no critical function. It is perfect peace, contentment. And that's what we all want, ultimately. Why do we ordain as bhikkhus, agarikas, nuns? Why do we do that? Because we found the world, you know, increasingly complicated and difficult, frustrating. And everybody wants peace and happiness and love. These three words. You know, we want love, kind of unconditioned love, peace and happiness, because they're all desirable in their terminology, they're, they're beautiful. So is that separate for many of us at this moment? And the separation is an illusion through our grasping of these five khandhas, seeing them in highly personal ways through conditioning, not through wisdom or understanding. So in this teaching is, uh, you know, the, the way to realize Dhamma for yourself. And Lung Cha, one of his, you know, I kept hearing, even when I couldn't understand Thai very well, he'd say, Ben Bajatang. And Bajatang is a Pali word to be realized individually through wisdom. So the Four Noble Truths is a, is a, a brilliant invitation. It's, a, it's from ancient India, but it's not about ancient India. It's about being human and how to realize, how to learn from this birth, this form, the way we are as individuals to break through the illusions that we've been conditioned by and we attach to, to find peace, happiness, and love. So I offer this for today's reflection.